Hi, folks. This is Brad Watson, pastor at Nexus Church. We are glad you have found our sermon podcast and that you're interested in our teachings. If you've ever considered financially supporting our work at Nexus Church, you can do that at nexuschurch.ca slash give. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. There are two major purposes in our criminal justice system, Your Honor, the pursuit of justice and the protection of the innocent. Neither of these purposes can be met if anything less than the maximum available sentence under the plea agreement is imposed upon Larry for his crimes. I realize you have many factors to consider when you fashion your sentence, but I submit to you that the preeminent question in this case as you reach a decision about how best to satisfy the dual aims of this court is the same question that I asked Judge Neff to consider. How much is a little girl worth? How much is a young woman worth? How much priority should be placed on communicating that the fullest weight of the law will be used to protect another innocent child from the soul-shattering devastation that sexual assault brings? I submit to you that these children are worth everything worth every protection the law can offer, worth the maximum sentence. At the end of the trial, Larry Nasser was handed down multiple prison sentences ranging from 40 to 175 years, and this was on top of already being sentenced to 60 years. The judge, speaking at the end of the trial, said to Larry that she had just signed his death warrant. He would die in prison. In this case, at least, <clears throat> the courts had firmly sided with the victims, and even still, what haunts me about Rachel's impact statement was her incredibly piercing question to the courts, and I think by extension to us. It's a question not only for courts and the justice system, but I think it's a, a question of sexual ethics. How much is a little girl worth? How much is a human worth? Human life? I'm inclined to think that all of us inside want to scream and echo Rachel's statement that they're worth everything. The value of a little girl, a child, all people is priceless, and yet... I'm not sure how much we collectively believe that to be true. It's estimated that for every 200 reports of rape, only three make it to trial. And the fact that one in four women and one in six men report being sexually abused before they're 18 is telling. Seems to me we're far still collectively from believing a child is worth everything. And as it is today, so our history books are stained with the atrocities that men have committed against women. The church shares in that collective responsibility, that collective stain. The church has a history of trying to keep women from leadership, erroneous teaching that women are inferior to men, and of course there's the great sins of sexual abuse. At times it's been systematic within the church, at other times it's the celebrity pastor tempted by the ring of power. That story in history, I think, is well known to most of us. What is less well known is that it was the church and the Jesus path that launched the first sexual revolution. 
They were the first to launch a bid for equality between the sexes, and I get that might feel far-fetched to some of us, given what we know of the church and its history. But let's go back into history. In the world of antiquity, Rachel's question about the worth of a little girl would have fallen on deaf ears. And the sexual landscape in the world of antiquity is so grossly unrecognizable to us, it will come as a shock. In the Greco-Roman world from which the Christian faith emerged from, in Latin, there are 25 words used to describe a prostitute or sexual slave. Interestingly enough, there's not a single word for a male virgin. And those two facts are very much linked together. That's because in the ancient world, they could tell you exactly how much a little girl was worth, 3 to $5. The price of a visit to the local brothel would cost you about the equivalent of a loaf of bread. To say a little girl is worth everything is something the entire ancient world would have found strange. Melissa Moore, a history of ancient sexuality in her fabulous book, writes this of Rome. Our categories of heterosexual and homosexual were meaningless in Rome. It was assumed that normal men would want to sleep with women, boys, sometimes adults, men, and that each type of partner provided different pleasures and problems. It's a very serious illustration of a very ancient idea about sexuality, that sex and aggression, sex and domination, sex and power are joined and cannot be put asunder. Roman culture thought of sex in terms of domination. The act of male penetrates lesser creatures, whether women, boys, or passive men, defining himself as a real man and a citizen. Tom Holland, the historian, uh, comes to the same conclusion. A brute truth that most in the ancient Roman world took for granted was the potency of a Roman penis. Sex was nothing if not an exercise of power. As captured cities were to the swords of the legions, so the bodies of those used sexually were to the Roman man. To be penetrated, male or female, was to be branded inferior, to be marked as womanish, barbarian, servile. In Rome, men no more hesitated to use slaves and prostitutes to relieve themselves of their sexual needs than they did to use the side of a road as a toilet. In Latin, the same word meo meant both ejaculate and urinate. To the presumptions that underlie this, however, Jesus and Paul brought a radically new perspective. Ancient world was harsh and brutal. And, and in some conversations this week, I get there's some anxiety sometimes in thinking, oh, is patriarchy inevitable or normal? We might ask, well, wait, wait, is, is the ancient culture, ancient Near Eastern, Greco-Roman culture, isn't that indicative of all of history? When did patriarchy begin? There are a myriad of theories suggesting patriarchy has been around anywhere from 2 million years to 6,000 years. Uh, some suggest, you know, sort of prehistoric societies were egalitarian, but they left behind no writing, so it's hard to tell. And sociologists can't point towards any specific initiating event, but... What seems to be the case is that anytime humans developed into a society, started gathering as a society, patriarchy seemed to follow quickly thereafter. Some trace it back to responsibility of fatherhood or the shift to agrarian societies or the dawning of the Bronze Age. Marxist thought traces patriarchy back to the idea of owning personal property. Still others have theorized that emerged when humans were able to capture and use fire to cook. We don't know. 
It's a bit of a mystery, but patriarchy has been a dominant force throughout history. And for some, I think it leads to an uncomfortable question. Is patriarchy natural? I've come to think it doesn't really matter if it's natural or not. Just because something is natural doesn't mean it's morally right. Something being natural doesn't make it good. Cancer is natural. Tsunamis are natural. The moment we give in to thinking what's natural is right, we become Nietzschean, and that's an ugly place to go. The truth is we really don't know why or how patriarchy developed. In Scripture, patriarchy is simply painted as, as the result of human fallenness and brokenness. It's pictured of, as a world in need of redemption. But until the first century, no movement had seriously challenged it. I want to jump to how Jesus and Paul seriously challenged this, but I want to ask sort of rhetorically first, why was Jesus killed? You don't get killed as a leader for passing around nice ideas. You get killed because your ideas are challenging accepted norms. And the idea that Jesus and Paul began precisely the ideas that would push and challenge patriarchy are ideas that got them killed. So let's start with Jesus. And I want to share a rather shocking passage from him, but I need to closet with context. Two qualifiers. The first is this. In case we're prone to think this passage has anything to do with LGBTQ folk, let's Let's get that out of our mind because Jesus is asked a very specific question and he gives a very specific answer about men and women. Second, let us remember that marriage and divorce were very different. It was basically a totally different institution back then. In the ancient world, a woman had no choice over who she was married. Her parents decided that for her. She also had no choice in getting divorced. A man had to initiate that. And to be divorced for a woman in antiquity was to leave her penniless and destitute. It was to sentence her to poverty and social estrangement. One final interpretive clue to this story Jesus tells, pay attention to the men and the male disciples and how they react. So teachers of the law come and say, is it lawful, they asked, for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Haven't you read, he replied, that the creator from the beginning made them male and female, and this is what he said. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. As a result, there are no longer two, but one flesh. So, humans shouldn't split up what God has joined together. Let's pause briefly here. For years now, I've been hunting for a post-purity, Jesus-path sexual ethic. And here's what I can tell from what Jesus is saying here. First, sex is spiritual. Sex is a union of bodies, union of lives. Sex is spiritual and what we do with our bodies is spiritual. It's spiritual because it's baked into the fabric of creation. When God endowed humanity with the image of God, it fundamentally separated how animals have sex and how we have sex. Sex is spiritual, of course. We all knew that two decades ago when Rob Bell told us everything's spiritual. 
Story continues, so then they asked, why did Moses lay it down that one should give the woman a certificate of divorce and make the separation legal? Moses gave you this instruction about how to divorce your wives, replied Jesus, because your hearts were hard. But that's not how it was at the beginning. Let me tell you this, anyone who divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to Jesus, ah, if that's the situation of a man with his wife, it would be better not to marry. Yeah. Not everyone can accept this word, replied Jesus. Only the people it's given to. You see, there are some eunuchs who are that way from birth. There are some who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are some who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. If anyone can receive this, let them do so. There's so much happening here. Everything's happening here. I love it. First, straight from Jesus, not all scripture is the same. Some scripture is better than others. We don't have this, oh, the Bible is all infallible and inerrant. Jesus says that's not true, actually. Some of it is very errant. This is a Jesus way to interpret the Bible. Some passages are lesser than others. Second, though, notice how the male disciples react. Ah, if I can't just discard of my wife, geez, I'd rather not get married. This is a direct attack on patriarchy and a direct attack on the notion that men could use women as disposable objects. Men were used to being able to have sex with whoever they wanted. They could discard of marriages and sexual partners with great ease. And when they learn that Jesus wants to lock the marital doors, they're horrified. Jesus is the bringer of good news, but at least initially for the boys, this doesn't seem like good news. The ones who are married, I would like to know how Peter's wife felt about him responding this way, but those who are married are like, oh my goodness, I got to get out. Those who aren't married are like, oh, I got to be careful with this. At the very least, this is bad news for patriarchy. In the ancient world, where men and women, or men used women in the same way they used urinals, Jesus is doing something unheard of in all of history. On the Jesus path, men are asked to curtail their sexual behavior and desires. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, apparently that has something to do with how we live our sexual lives. Third, Jesus is so serious about this that he actually gives men an out. He admits, oh, this is tough, I know. Not everyone can accept this. This is tough, so let me give you an alternative, men. If reining in your sexual desires and refusing to treat women as disposable objects is too much for you, good news, the Jesus path has an alternative. You can live the way of the eunuch, cut it off. Ho. Those are the two Jesus path options. In this ancient context, I've got to be honest, I don't know exactly all this means for today, but in this ancient context, Jesus says, Monogamy or singleness? And if we don't understand how incredibly revolutionary and strange all this is, it might be because we're unaware of what male sexual behavior in the wild is like. Joseph Henrik, he's the author of The Weirdest People in the World. Weird means Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic. How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous. This whole book is about the reasons why the West has done so well on a global scale. 
He starts by explaining how this informative ethic, it changed things dramatically, and he compares us with our closest animal kingdom relatives. If we're just animals, what are the closest animals to us like? From among our closest evolutionary relatives, apes and monkeys, guess how many species both live in large groups, like Homo sapiens, and have only monogamous pair bonding? Zero. Historian Kyle Harper puts it this way, in the original sexual revolution, all the world's diffuse erotic energy was to be cramped into one frail sacred union. What Jesus is doing is a massive, massive curtailing of male sexual power. And Henry goes on to describe the effects of the Christian sexual ethic in terms that might be my favorite quote ever. The church, through the institution of monogamous marriage, reached down and grabbed men by the testicles. Have a seat. This is what the Jesus Path movement starts. Can no longer treat women as disposable. On the Jesus Path, you must be committed in sexual relations. But then Paul comes along, and he does something even bigger. In the letter to Corinthians, Paul was speaking to two extremist groups. One was, hey, we're Jesus people, that means we're free, so we can do whatever we want. We can have sex with whoever we want. And then the other extremist groups, boy, these didn't sound like fun people. They were like, no one, not even married people, can have sex ever. Whew. Paul's like, ah, chill out there, Corinthians. To the first group. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Takes this Jesus idea farther. He speaks in breathtaking terms about the dignity that's afforded our bodies. We're not animals. In the ancient world, many bodies were treated like urinals, and today we're more prone to think of bodies in the way John Mayer would. They're our wonderland, a playground. But Paul says something even more daring. Your frail human body is a home for God. And the very idea imbues the human body and the physical with incredible spiritual significance. Sex is inherently spiritual because of how we were made. And then, for the first time in history, we have a new marriage ethic, a new marriage command. It's not just men. You have to stay with your sexual partners. No, husbands love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's worth noting for Paul, this is no empty romantic gesture. He writes just a few chapters later, what is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. Knows no jealousy. Makes no fuss. Is not puffed up. Has no shameless ways, doesn't force its rightful claim, doesn't rage or bear a grudge, doesn't cheer at others' harm, rejoices rather in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, love hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. This has never been asked of men in the history of the world until this moment. In this sexual revolution, it's the men who find themselves, for the first time in recorded history, called to evolve a higher moral state. And to the other extremist group, says no one should ever have sex. I'm going to start with these words. The wife does not have authority over her own body. 
but yields it to her husband. Wins here like, ooh. The thing was, no one in Paul's day would have objected to this. This was par for the course, okay? Standard sexual ethic of Rome and the world of antiquity. Wife doesn't have authority over body. Nothing new. But then, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. In the same way, represents a revolution. Paul is insisting on complete mutuality. The married couple are to be together as equals. It's so hard for us to appreciate how stunning this was. Today, we take mutual consent and commitment for granted, but we take it for granted now because it was radical back then, and there's a straight line from then till now. And then, for this reason, no, it is okay to have sex within marriage. It's heartily encouraged. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent. And for a time, so they may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again. I honestly thought we came up with the consent sexual ethic like five years ago. This is the first recorded use of consent as a sexual ethic. And Paul goes further than Jesus and introduces the idea of love and consent and equality. Why would Paul get his head chopped off for these ideas? Celsus, a Roman writer, tells us exactly why. People of the Jesus path are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid. Only slaves, women, and little children. Gee, I wonder why, Celsus. The three groups you could readily, at any time, force to have sex with you are suddenly off the table. The slaves, the women, and children. It was foolish and backwards. But slowly these ideas like yeast and bread throughout decades, centuries, millennia now have evolved to where we are today. David Bentley Hart says this, without exaggerating the degree to which any a culture, any culture, suddenly changes its view of the relations between the sexes, nonetheless, Paul had this remarkable egalitarianism, almost to the point that it's almost historically inconceivable. And this had its effect up through the Middle Ages. Position of woman in Christian culture is more annual than that of the woman in most cultures throughout the world at the time. That doesn't mean that there wasn't quite a lot lacking in this setup, but that's just the reality of cultural and material conditions. So often the church has missed the mark with sexual ethics and equality, and we all know this. It's failed to strive for the ideals that Jesus and Paul set out. But what cannot be ignored is how we think about sexuality and equality today flows straight from the cross to our day. And it still calls us to wrestle with four things. First, sex is inherently spiritual. If human life is sacred, the human body is sacred, then sex is also sacred and spiritual. Two, it's immoral to use and discard bodies as mere objects of sexual gratification. Three, sexual relations must be governed by mutuality and consent. And four, sexual relationships are meant to be governed by the highest standards of love. And some of us, I don't doubt, might think, I don't like that. I don't agree with those things. Fair. 
But I won't be shy in saying this. These are still the most revolutionary sexual ideas the world has ever encountered. And we would do well to take them seriously. And why? Because of this number, one in four. And we might think to ourselves, I'm so glad I don't live in the world of antiquity. Thank God indeed. But we still live in a one in four world. One in four women are sexually abused before the age of 18. One in six men. I shudder to think what happens between 18 and 25. We still live in a one in four world. And how we think about sex and sexual ethics is important. It seemed apropos to me to give Rachel Den Hollander the final word this morning because her victim impact statement wasn't just that, it was a sermon. In particular, I ask you to pay attention to her rationale for being able to call what Larry did evil. She says, we know things are crooked because there's a straight line. That straight line is Jesus. And her words, I think, are a needed testimony for those of us still living in a one in four world. The cost, emotional and physical, to see this through has been greater than many will ever know. And Larry, I don't need to tell you what the cost of your abuse has been to me because you got to read my journals, every word of them, because those had to go into evidence to make this happen. But I want you to understand why I made this choice, knowing full well what it was going to cost to get here and with very little hope of ever succeeding. I did it because it was right. No matter the cost, it was right. And the farthest I can run from what you have become is to daily choose what is right instead of what I want. You have become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires. A man defined by his daily choices over and over again to feed that selfishness and perversion. You chose to pursue your wickedness no matter what it cost others. And the opposite of what you have done is for me to choose to love sacrificially no matter what it costs me. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom. And you have spoken of praying for forgiveness, and so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know that the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it is better for a millstone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble. And you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and its eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point 
of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Throughout this process, I have clung to a quote by C.S. Lewis where he says, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of unjust and just? A man does not call a line crooked unless he first has some idea of straight. What was I comparing the universe to when I called it unjust? Larry, I can call what you did evil and wicked because it was. And I know it was evil and wicked because the straight line exists. The straight line is not measured based on your perception or anyone else's perception. And this means I can speak the truth about my abuse without minimization or mitigation, and I can call it evil because I know what goodness is. And this is why I pity you. Because when a person loses the ability to define good and evil, when they cannot define evil, they can no longer define and enjoy what is truly good. When a person can harm another human being, especially a child, without true guilt, they have lost the ability to truly love. Larry, you have shut yourself off from every truly beautiful and good thing in this world that could have and should have brought you joy and fulfillment. And I pity you for it. You could have had everything you pretended to be. Every woman who stood up here truly loved you as an innocent child. Real, genuine love for you. And it did not satisfy I have experienced the soul-satisfying joy of a marriage built on sacrificial love and safety and tenderness and care. I have experienced true intimacy in its deepest joys, and it is beautiful and sacred and glorious. And that is a joy you have cut yourself off from ever experiencing. And I pity you for it. Who is going to tell these little girls that what was done to them matters? that they are seen and valued, that they are not alone, and they are not unprotected. And I could not do that. But we are here now, and today that message can be sent. With the sentence you hand down, you can communicate to all these little girls and to every predator, to every little girl or young woman who is watching how much a little girl is worth. I am asking that when we leave this courtroom, we leave knowing that when Larry was sexually aroused and gratified by our violation, when he enjoyed our suffering, when he took pleasure in our abuse, that was evil and wrong. I ask that you hand on a sentence that tells us that what was done to us matters, that we are known we are worth everything, worth the greatest protection the law can offer, the greatest measure of justice available. And to everyone who is watching, I asked that same question, how much is a little girl worth?
Just before our love got lost, you said, I am as constant as a northern star. And I said, constantly in the darkness, where's that at? If you want me, I'll be in the bar. On the back of a cartoon coaster, in the blue TV screen I drew a map of Canada, oh Canada, with your face sketched on it twice, oh you're in my blood like holy wine, you taste so bitter and so sweet, oh I could drink a case of you. of pains I'm frightened by the devil and I'm drawn to those ones that ain't afraid I remember that time you told me you said love is touching souls surely touch mine cause part of you pours out of me lines from time to time Oh, you're in my blood like holy wine You taste so bitter and so sweet Oh, I could drink a case of you and your deeds and she said go to him stay with him if you can but be prepared to bleed oh but you are in my blood you're my holy wine you're so bitter bitter and so sweet oh I could drink a case of you And I
As I consider this Eucharist reflection, it's a little bit of a reflection about my curiosity, or maybe it points to my bad memory, as I ponder the question, where am I? Or sometimes I ask myself, when am I? What I mean when I say this, and I ask myself with confusion and sometimes great concern, is what are the times that we live in? What is this place? I don't recognize this world sometimes, and I wonder, what is this moment in history? Depending on my perspective, if I look inward or if I look outward, I get many different answers. As I look outward into our streets, just a few steps out onto King, I am clear I'm living in the worst uh, case of living affordability in my lifetime. As I look inward at where I am in my life cycle, I'm at a stage that is very reflective. Um, but it's confusing too, as I deconstruct so many things that I once um, believed without question. It's kind of like being in adolescence again. It's kind of weird. But then again, as I look out, I see that we're in an astounding age of technological advances. AI has become an everyday word. And then I look at the wider world. And everywhere I look, this sounds you know, a little morbid, but I'm bearing witness to death locally, globally, oppression, mass murder, genocide. Why is this common? It feels like it's becoming common. But on a lighter note, I also look around and often I find I'm amongst a sea of Swifties. Uh, and that, for those that don't know, um, is a name for avid Taylor Swift fans. And I marvel at this Phenomena that is the heiress tour. But the question, where am I, as it relates to the Eucharist, is the question that I want to answer today. You see, I consider myself a person kind of with a pretty wonderful life. I feel grateful, truly grateful, every day. Yet, I get sad and contemplative about all of these situations I just mentioned, except for the Swifties. <laughs> but that's where the Eucharist comes in, or communion, which is a term that I'm uh, more familiar with. You see, communion reminds me and confirms in me where I am. Amidst the chaos, the hurt, the gratitude, the sorrow, the death and the joy-filled moments in life. Communion is an aid to my bad memory. Communion time and time again, using all of my senses, reminds me where I am in this moment. I am with Jesus. The time and the place that makes all the difference. So walking in this world of housing crisis, midlife crisis, AI, war, and all the eras, <laughs> um, 
When I take the bread and the cup today, I'm reminded that I'm right here. And when you're ready, come up to do um, communion, sharing communion or Eucharist at either one of these tables. There's one at the top and two on either side of me. We'll hold out the bread or we'll hold out the gluten-free crackers to you and take a piece. And you can dip it in either the juice or the wine. We will say to you that Christ is here and you will take it in. And as you do that, use all of your senses, smell, sight, sound, touch and taste, to say and confirm, I am here, I am here, you are here, we're here together. And through the Eucharist, we're reminded that God is here too.
I will share a prayer to wrap things up. God, you never stop chasing us, where pain is piercing through us into communion, into joy. Shepherd, lead us into the circle of courage where we surrender to you, to love who finds us in our sin, who seeks us in our pain, who weeps for all the wrong that has smeared mud over our name. Children of God do not have to live pressed under the weight of someone else's wishes, pierced by the pen of someone else's words, inked with the list of someone else's needs, crumbled in the trash when they're done using us. We are not disposable. Love, may we allow you to unfold us, may we allow you to rewrite us. The only words that belong on the pages of our life tell a story of courage written with Christ. Shepherd, lead us into the circle of courage, freed by your own scars. May our wounds become the welcome for those who are still chained. In peace, you may go and uh, join us for some soup. And if you don't have brought any like me, um, still join us. <laughs>